Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks, and on today's episode, I am just super excited for you to listen in to a conversation that I got to have with Elvin Turner. Elvin is the author of Be Less Zombie, How Great Companies Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People. I mean, with the topic like or with a title like that, I mean you can't not want to listen in on this. So be less zombie. That that spectrum of being a unicorn, this one mythical creature, uh, you know, that 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 billion dollar valuation company, or being the zombie, that company that's just no longer relevant. And he has seen so many organizations, large and small, that have really felt themselves become zombies as they've stopped becoming relevant, if they've stopped innovating on themselves. We got a chance to talk through a lot, where to start an innovation, how to continue to foster that innovation mindset as you move through your organization, and how both leaders and practitioners can really think about the, the tactics in the process. His book is, is, a, is a guide. It's a how-to. We take out the jargon and talk about just how do you do this work? So if you're in, involved in anything that, that touches innovation in, you, in your team or in your organization, I think this is going to be the episode for you. Let's jump right in. Elvin, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, first, let's start off with you. I want to learn a little bit about your background and how you got to this wonderful, broad, experiment of space of innovation and, and the consulting you do. Tell, tell me about you. Well, I, I never intended to get into innovation. It kind of happened as a, as a bit of a mistake, really. I started out, left college, got ill. Actually, I couldn't work for a couple of years and wow. um, then fell into this marketing agency. I planned to stay there for about six months so I could go traveling with my friends they kind of went without me. <laughs> oh no! That story. Well, we we were a terrible band, and uh, they just went off, and uh, they decided they didn't need me. But it was oh. just as well they came back soon after. And um, <laughs> anyway, I, I joined this company and expecting to stay six months, and I stayed over twenty years. Wow! Because the the company they hired me as a speechwriter. Really, I was doing a lot of um, speechwriting for corporate execs and some politicians and things. And it grew and it evolved over a long period of time into a leadership consultancy agency that specialized also in change and innovation. And through various, I don't know, projects, retraining, hanging around with other people, I got to the point where I was heading up the innovation practice for a few years. And it's great. I got to work with some really, really amazing people and companies and helping them figure out you know, what does tomorrow look like? How do we create an organization that can find tomorrow in a healthy way and not kill ourselves en route? And um, yeah, about five years ago, decided to step up on my own and do my own thing. And along the way, I started doing some, some lecturing in business schools on MBA programs, entrepreneurship programs, which I love. I'd lo a small part of that. I wouldn't want that to be everything. And then the book right. turned up, um, which was actually a challenge from a business professor who I, I met. And the first first thing he said to me, I'd never met him before. He said, so what are you writing? Mm. Said, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, what book are you working on? Like everyone's working on a book. As if it's an assumption that we're all writing yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I said, well, I'm not. He said, well, you bloody well should be. Like, Hang on a minute. Who are you? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, I love that. Anyway, it kind of went from there. He, he really challenged me in a very positive way. And I, I drove away from that meeting thinking, he's right. I should write a book. So anyway, the rest is history and uh, Be Less Zombie came out about a year ago. 
and uh, yeah, just enjoying the ride. We're already thinking about the next two or three. Of course. Well, now you have it under your belt. You know how to do this. You can just you can just crank them out, right? I mean, that's uh, yeah. And uh, just tell everybody else. Why aren't you writing a bloody book? Okay, so I am writing a book right now, and I have to say it. I've been I have run a company for what thirteen years. It's so it's the hardest thing I've ever done writing a book. Yeah. So much harder than starting and running a company, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such an interesting intellectual challenge. So maybe tell me, tell us a little bit about the book. I, I would love to, the kind of the framework. I mean, obviously it's got this like really uh, juicy title, Be Less Zombie. Um, what, what is that about? Tell us what, what, you, what that theme is. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you where it was born, actually. Again, part, partly by accident. Same business school. I was running a program for them and they wanted something a bit different. I've been running an innovation program for them for a few years. And they said, let's, let's mix it up a little bit. So I came up with something that was, um, it was designed to be, what can we learn from these unicorn companies? That's stuffy corporates, because that's who it was aimed at. What can we earn, learn from the likes of Uber and Airbnb and all of the others? Where they're not just making something new, they're going about it in a brand new way as well. They're messing with the ways of working. So it was, we came up with this idea of the unicorn companies. What's at the other end? I don't know, a zombie, you know, an organization that's struggling. Still a mythical creature, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah as well. And, and make, trying to maintain, I mean, my, my innovation definition is the, the continuous pursuit of yeah. profitable relevance. And if you're not relevant, you're dead. And my experience is that companies, larger companies, find it really hard to actually prioritize their own relevance. So anyways, zombies were born. And we we got these um, this cohort to stand in a line. I said, okay, more zombie at what? More unicorn at one end, more zombie at the other. I want you to position yourself based on how you would identify your company that you work for. And everybody ran for the zombie end. I thought this wow. is very interesting that people think that. So we just unpacked it through a conversation, and then we carried on with the workshop. But the be less zombie principles were what the the, the book um, kind of was born from. And really, it's it's a handbook that's not really written for innovation people. The irony is it's the innovation community that's reading it and reviewing it the most, which is great. And I I, I have to be honest, I was quite nervous about innovation people reading it because I deliberately written it for everyday people, managers, leaders who have had no background in it really, but are tasked with doing it, making this stuff happen. So it's trying to be jargon free. And I thought, oh no, when innovation people read this, they're going to say, well, why is he calling it that? Why isn't he calling it that? And, you know, add appropriate jargon here and there. Um, but no, it's it's really designed to, I, in the book, I talk about turning on innovation, which is getting the basics in place and then turn it up. Don't try and get too clever, too sophisticated, too quickly. Just look at what process do you need? What resources do you need? What capabilities do you need? What culture and what leadership in order that you can deliver the innovation outcomes that you need. It's about being deliberate about creating a state rather than hoping that innovation will just show up in a context that's actually designed to kill it inside most organizations. Oh, uh, we're not going to have enough time. We're not going to have enough time. I already know it. We're not going to have enough time. Okay. Um, so, so many questions. Uh, first off, I love this idea of the fact that um, of uh, staying relevant, right, um, or or not becoming irrelevant. And I like that that you kind of frame this as a spectrum. It's not is the switch on or off, mm. um, which I really appreciate because I think almost in everything, all of life, let alone all of business life, there's a there's a spectrum. And mm. this this zombie to unicorn is such a beautiful uh, imagery of like where someone might stand in that spectrum. Mm. You talked about starting. One of the mantras that we have here at Crema is if Crema looks the same two years from now, we'll be irrelevant. 
um, meaning we have to adapt. We have to change. And that might be small. It might be macro. It might be large. Mm. Um, but we have to be in the mindset and the preparation to be changing. But you talk about you have to start someplace, especially inside mm. of an organization that's not designed to do that. Where do you start? Where do you even begin to, to yeah. shift that mindset? Well, it depends on the company. And for me, I, it depends on where I'm invited in. Ideally, yeah. you're starting at the most senior place. You're, you're working with someone who has a genuine appetite to pursue innovation as an act of prudence. You know, quite a lot of executives fear innovation because they assume innovation equals disruption. And I'm saying, yeah. no, it, yeah, that's part of it. But look at your innovation as a portfolio, some incremental stuff, some scaling stuff and some out there stuff. Um, and you know, have a deliberate framework around it. The, the, starting from a strategic point of view, I'll be honest, tends to be a luxury. I'm normally yeah. starting somewhere further down where it's a bit scrappier. And a team mm. is saying, listen, we're dead. As you were saying, our team is dead in two years unless we do something different with this product, help. And often it's actually helping them with some basics, which I'm sure a lot of the, 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 um, the, the listeners will be familiar with. And that is the biggest thing you can do to make most progress most quickly is lower the stakes. Mm. Because most of the time people are not innovating, well, for two reasons. One, they don't have time because we're sucked into the, the status quo and it doesn't give us the time. But the other reason is it's fear. Taking the first step towards something that is more disruptive, uh, more likely to fail. There are so many reasons not to do it that people don't even take the first step. So how about we reduce the stakes of taking the first step Enter minimum viable products and experimentation, which still in the corporate world, most people have never heard of, Right, which still amazes me. If I stand at the front of a leadership training program or something, and I hold up the Lean Startup and say, who's ever heard of this book? And I get one or two hands go up. Okay, who's read the book? Half a hand stays up. Hey, who's read more than the front cover? <laughs> and I'm just not trying to beat them up, but it's just to say, you must read this book. It's got so many important ideas, which I know have been refined since, but... The idea of starting small and testing assumptions is still like yeah. for, for so many people. It's, it's great. I love it when people get that light bulb moment. But it for me, you know, in the book, we talk about tank, pond, ocean. Start in the tank, learn the lessons. Move on to the, to the pond, learn, learn the lessons. Move on to the ocean. You know, it's, it's, it's familiar territory, just different language. But that sort of concept for a team and to teach them that boss who you need to get sign off from will be so amazed when you go to him having spent $500 learning something that would seem impossible to learn without spending $50,000. Um, their jaw will hit the floor. You will immediately gain esteem in their eyes. Their confidence in you and this process will increase. And it starts from there. And I, I've just seen that happen time and time again where we're not you know in the book we talk about spend 50 bucks learning something not 50 grand building something or trying to prove something because you're going to learn the same thing might as well spend 50 and it's that mindset shift you can just see it you probably see it as well in, in teams all around the room it's like oh my goodness of course why didn't we think of this and it it, it just changes so many things that that one idea i mean there are many other things i would wrap around that but i think lower the stakes, make the first step simpler and easier, increases the appetite to pursue the things that our future needs us to start pursuing today. So you talked a little bit about the, the things that keep people from starting to that lowering the stakes. And in, in, uh, one of those things is fear, right? There's an emotion mm -hmm. based in this. Um, and I talk a lot about feelings 
in the sense that we make decisions based off of our emotions, right? How do you find that you can unlock that fear? And it, sometimes it is just smaller, but how do you create a, I hate using the, same, the, the term safe space, but mm. how do you create a space where people feel like they're empowered to actually take those risks and try those smaller experiments instead of, I guess, juxtaposed to this idea that I need to impress someone with the kind of biggest box, right? Or the, the most shiny box or, you know, the box with the most colors and the most pop or the most, wow. How do you, how do you shift that um, where they feel safe to say, you know what, I can show them something smaller, um, but that maybe has a, a actually proven traction or proven impact. What does that look yeah. like? Well, I, I think it's, again, it's one of the tricky ones, depending where you're starting. And I think if you've got a boss who's used to only one way of developing things and it starts big, that, that can be a challenge. Um, I guess what I've seen is there is a, a, an increasing appetite, well, an increasing desire not to take risk is actually what I'm seeing at the moment. Mm -hmm. And when, when you can come and say, we can learn more about this idea and understand much quicker than ever we, we could before, whether this is something to invest in, it lowers the stakes for everybody. Would that be of interest to you? Mm -hmm. it, it usually is of interest. And, and what I've found is that, um, again, if we're just talking about leaders, just taking some, it's interesting. If you go with PowerPoint, you feel like you're showing, this is, you're kind of back to old school. I'm not saying this is that it's, that it's bad, but people are used to PowerPoint. If you turn up with a thing, even if it's a paper prototype or, mm -hmm. or something, the shift in certainly that I've seen in mentality is, oh, this, come on, mate, do, it, do that again. Let me do that again. And there's an yeah. instant engagement with it, which you don't get with just looking at slides. And I found that the more you can get to creating an authentic experience of the thing that you're trying to test, people just emotionally connect with it quicker. And then you also get better feedback because that's the whole point of an MVP, right? It's you're trying right. to create an authentic experience of the thing that you're trying to get good data on rather than a, a pretty box, which they don't really get. And they say, well, I think this, well, no, give me an authentic experience that I can engage with. So that, that will be one part. I, I, but I wouldn't want to sugarcoat it because I actually think um, in, in many teams, you have got a legacy mindset that you've got to let go of you've worked with people who have stabbed you in the back or you thought you could trust and couldn't and we tried that once and look what happened to that person they're now buried in a drawer somewhere it's you know and and you i think the the easiest place to do it is when you get a new leader or a new manager and of course we don't all have that luxury yeah. but someone who you can come in and you can almost start again um, that that's one way there there has been a way that I've worked with teams before which is tougher and messier but you can still get there which is kind of team therapy and you just put it all out on the table and say listen these are the outcomes we need in the future I'm actually doing this with the team at the moment here's where we need to go here's where we've come from mm -hmm. we need to get to that performance state in order to deliver that kind of work what's it going to take what do we need to do differently how do we need to think how do we need to treat one another what's it going to take and a team that's up for that, you can make progress with them, sensitively coaching them through it. But it's quite hard yards because so much of what we are used to and have experienced is so emotionally baked into us. It's quite hard to let go of some of that stuff. So it, it can be done delicately. But um, I think the faster, again, the faster you can put something small 
that gives you data that allows you to make decisions that that's for me has been the fast track so far. We talk a lot about our product manager, primarily our product managers and anybody on the team, because our, our entire teams will work with the client, but our product managers often will say, how much do I put therapist as a, a, a part of my job description? Like, I mean, just, it's just yeah. this like, Hey, it's fine. What's, and even having that conversation of what's the, kind of uh, the pre-mortem, I don't know, yeah. this idea of pre-morteming things. It's like, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Let's try that. We, we know for sure we're going to learn. And I love your language about shifting to a mindset of learning. Mm. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. What does that look like? And then what does that happen? How does that happen at scale once an organization starts to, to take hold of this, this yeah. learning mindset? Well, I'll just zoom out a little bit. I think one of the things that I encourage companies to think about is, is innovation in three dimensions. And I talk about having a better why, a better what, and a better how than, than your competitors. And each of those demands uh, a lens of learning. So our why is, well, why do we show up, the purpose that we're here for, the progress we help customers make, the difference we make in the world. Depending on what's coming from the future, we might want to subtly recalibrate what our why looks like. So mm-hmm. what are we learning about the future? And, you know, in the book, I'll talk about, you know, a quick and dirty approach to understanding the future is what's happening. What does it mean? What do we do? And that interpretation piece in the middle, what does it mean is often the bit that we jump that we, we leave. And there's so much scope for creative thinking in there about how could we show up given that we can see this is coming. How do we show up as an organization? What products do we take to market? And then, so the first one is the why. The second is the what, what we make, our expression of our, of our why, if you like. And again, what's coming from the future? What makes us relevant today is this collection of technology that allows a user to make this progress. The progress probably isn't going to change very fast. They'll still want to do the same things. The technology will be dead in two years. <clears throat> Excuse me. So again, learning. I, I was reading yesterday that um, IBM did some research a little while ago saying that the speed of change and the implication on the erosion of the relevance of our skills and knowledge means that we should be doing at least one hour of learning a day. Goodness. Mm. So that's, there's, mm. there's the, and there's the how. How are we organizing to deliver this stuff better than anybody else? So what social trends are coming? What technology is coming that can help us do the same thing faster, better, more, with more quality? So it's experimentation and innovation in three directions, but the heart of all of it has to be learning. I still don't think the pennies dropped in many organizations. Learning is still, you have to go and do this 15 minute webinar on X and then you can tick the box. And it's like, really? Your competitive the, the CE credits or the continual education credits just to say that we did, right? Yeah. And you're, you know, it was written years ago, I can't remember, the, um, Peter Senge said the, the, your, the biggest source of competitive advantage is the ability of you to ability of you to learn faster than your competition and I don't think that's changed it's but learning and then turning into action so I think in some respects the the whole lean start startup movement has been helpful in moving us more towards test and learn hey that learn word is something we really need to pay attention to so um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's absolutely huge. And I think we need to, in the same way that innovation has so many different definitions inside organizations, right. it's important to orientate around one so we all know what we're doing. I think the same is true of learning because it can mean so many different things. It can mean nothing. So what do we mean by learning in this organization? What does good learning look like? How will we know when we've learned? How mm. will we know when we're learning better than our competition? What does better look like? We don't spend enough time asking the questions that could actually be the, 
this this spark plug for for what ignites tomorrow. And it's interesting because I think we see as well that, that there's always these secondary benefits, right? So that that how how will we know when we learn something? But in the process of actually moving towards this this learning metric, if you will, mm. oftentimes you go and then we saw something we didn't even expect. Yeah. And I think those are the those are kind of the magic moments, right? Where you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. If anything, all that we really had to do was unlock people to actually take their first steps forward. Yeah. And then after that, it was like, as you're learning to walk forward, all of a sudden you look up and around and you're like, oh, there's 15 other paths here that I didn't even know were up ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what's the biggest thing that you see holds leadership back that, that literally keeps leaders stuck or, or spinning from being able to, to move in this direction? I think it's a couple of things. I don't think hand on heart, most leaders would say, I know we need to do more innovation. And usually that's why they, they ring me up. Yeah. I think there's two things going on. One is what, what we measure. You know, we, people say um, what we do is what we measure. Yeah, what we measure is what we value. Okay, right. so what do we really value around here? I, I, I was asking, um, I'm doing a, a talk for a company in a couple of weeks and I, I said to them, I gave them some ideas on how to set up the talk. And one of the things they're doing, I said, send out this question to all of your employees and see what they say. How, how do they finish this, this sentence? I would innovate more, but finish oh, the good. sentence. And so they're, good. they're already sending through the, and it's always the same old stuff, but it immediately, it's like, a, it's like the fastest innovation audit that you can do because everything just suddenly comes out. There's no, you know, it could be anonymous, no one knows what, but suddenly you can start to stack rank, you know, what's really holding people back. And you have to be mm -hmm. careful because some of that stuff is false positives, but quite often it's, um, it's, it's the, uh, anyway, all of that to say what we measure really matters. And usually the things that we're measuring inside organizations, the things that leaders are really rewarded for is more of the same, replicating, hitting the next quarter, all the stuff that we know, it's short-term focus. Short-term focus doesn't have time to do disrupt, more disruptive innovation. So all we get is incremental and incremental just pushes us in, into the innovative dilemma, just getting really good at doing what we do today. And then we miss the thing that overtakes us. So if you look at organizations like 3M, mm. where they're measuring, you know, 30% of revenue had to come from products that didn't exist four years ago. 30% is quite a chunk. That's you can't just you, you can't just do incremental innovation on that. You have to step into a mindset of taking bigger bets. And that means, uh, well, a portfolio at least, the rest of the organization has to snap into place to facilitate that outcome. We're not trying to come up with disruptive innovation around the day job, trying to stuff it in around the edges. We're having mm -hmm. to be strategic and deliberate about what environment will we need for these kinds of ideas and outcomes to show up? So the first is what we measure tends to feel like a bit of a get out, I think, sometimes. But it's, well, we have to do this. There's no mm. time to innovate. I've even had a CEO once was invited into a leadership um, program that I was running. Q&A time with the CNO. And the, this guy put his, bravely put his hand up and he said, um, I, all this stuff we're learning about innovation is brilliant. I love it. I can see how I can apply. I just don't have time. How, how do you make time? And the CEO kind of scoffed and said, well, what makes you think I've got time? Oh, no one's got time to do this stuff. And I thought, no, no, you're just killing the program. You're just sponsored. You're just saying, you're basically saying that I don't even do this stuff. Even I haven't got time. Now, if yeah, so there's no champion. Can, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and if no, if you know, if that person can't make time, what does that say to everybody else? So the first is measurement. The second, I think, is that most leaders have been promoted on the basis of being excellent at executing the day job in a functional discipline. <clears throat> They've never had to lead anything more than incremental. Now you're asking them to lead something more than incremental and they don't actually know how to do it. And it's very hard for them to say that because they like to be seen as the expert because mm -hmm. that's the way they've always succeeded from school days all the way up. Knowing the right answer gives me legitimacy. Well, guess what? It's getting harder than ever to predict the right answer. So we need, you know, your, your space, cross-functional collaborative teams who, you know, all of the big ideas happen at the, at the crosshairs of different disciplines. And, um, that is something that's very a tough nut to crack and not really interested in the leadership development that's required. It's interesting. I think I've, I've heard you say before, there has to be this shift from management to leadership hmm. and this idea of most leaders just like you said, they, they were, they were promoted because they were executing well and executing yeah. was about managing and managing yeah. was about control and control was about decisions and those decisions need to go through me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just even as a personal exercise, I had a mentor about five years ago say, George, if you want crema to grow, then you need to replace yourself because it will not grow if you and your business partner are making every decision, you know, and this is when we were about 20 people. And so now mm -hmm. we're, we're approaching 50 people. It took me five years, you know, it took me several years to figure out how to do that and to, yeah. to replace it and to build trust and, and understand. But um, as of January of, of 2021, uh, I have no clients that I service. I have no, no one that actually reports directly to me. And, and I'm not managing any one particular, I'm trying to write a book. We, we already talked about that. That's the hardest thing I've ever <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. But it allow, it frees me to say, what's next for Crema? Mm. Right. It doesn't yeah. mean I have to go execute on all that, but it allows me the space to think about it, to explore it. Yeah. And even we were just having a conversation this morning that it's some of the exploring is going, you know what, we need to go back to practicing what we preach. Yeah. yeah. We need to start experimenting and testing on our ourselves and what's working. And we've gotten really good at executing. And this is why people hire us. Yeah. But how do we still stay curious and have imagination? You know, it, yeah, it's, yeah. but I, I wouldn't have had the time to do that had I not replaced myself. No, no, it's good. I, I, a question that I encourage people to ask on repeat, because the answer always changes, is who do we need to become? Because mm, so what good. you need to become in a year's time is not the same answer as what you're going to need to become in two years time. So right. I want people to have that on their wall. And they're always right. thinking about that because something shifted overnight. It did. What impact has it made on your business? Do you know? Is anyone watching? Is anyone interpreting? Often not, because we're in such a rush. I think you're absolutely right. Making space is competitive advantage if we use it well. We had this program, and actually we've we've tried to implement it in some of our clients where we we, you know, we're a service-based company. So primarily we're if you want to boil it down to it, we're we're deploying people at time, right? Mm. And yet what we've decided to do is that every other Friday, we dial down all client work and we work on continual education, um, mm -hmm. experimentation or venture building. And yes, it's only every other Friday. So what can you really accomplish? But it's, it's just by having that small amount of time, even in yeah. that 20%, like 15%, yeah. it's incredible what comes out of those days. Yeah. Yeah. And what we end up taking back to our clients and the clients will ring us up on Monday because we do it on a Friday. They'll ring us up on Monday and go, what'd you guys do? What'd you accomplish? <laughs> right? 
<laughs> and they, and sometimes they'll be on there on the demos saying like, yeah. show us the demo, show us which, what you built. That's and the right. technology, the experimentation that comes out of this time that seems like a waste of time from, mm. a, from the, from the, you know, from the um, spreadsheet yeah. ends up being something that gets, you know, causes us to become a, a React JavaScript shop. We never did React before until we started mm. experimenting. With, this is years ago. We started experimenting yeah. with it in, in that time. It allows us to do um, design sprint workshopping. We never did design sprint workshopping before. Now it's one of our core services. You know, yeah. these are all things we wouldn't have even found had we not just carved off a day every other week. Yeah. Now it's getting more expensive as the organization is growing, but we'll have a model of that. And we try to encourage our clients, where's your space? Where's that 20% mm -hmm. or that 10% or that 15%? Yeah. What does that look like? Um, do you see companies doing anything like that? Do you see them actually creating, carving off that space to think, to explore, to experiment? Um, not consistently. Uh, and sometimes you see it within teams within inside an organization. I mean, interestingly, at the moment, I'm working with an NGO and yeah. we're having a conversation with them because often NGOs, they're low on money, big on purpose. You've got people there who are there for the mission and they're yeah. burning themselves out because we've got to save money, you know, and they're, they're using systems that should have been replaced 10 years, all, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and what we're, what they want to do is double their impact in the next 10 years. So I'm saying your people will all be dead by then. That's right. Really, because they're so yeah. stressed. So let's 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 zoom out. Let's work back from outcome. And we're looking at what does what performance state do people need to be in continually? Therefore, what's the maximum capacity we should realistically put on any single person? And working back from how much rest and recovery do they need in the day? Let's be real, we're human beings. How much learning time are we going to need to keep up with the pace that we need to be moving at? And how much innovation do we need? Not everybody necessarily is going to be doing the same amount, depending on your role. But unless we're deliberate about those three things, they will not show up. They'll show up around the edges and your, your culture and your performance will hit the ceiling because you're not being deliberate about allowing human beings to do their best work, which is ultimately what it's all about. So they're, they're swallowing hard and looking at that and thinking, yeah, he's probably right. <laughs> and we all know it. Yeah. But we don't tend to think like it because anything less than doing, you know, 40 hours a week, whatever it is, actual work at your keyboard. Yeah, right. How much of that is actually productive work? Um, then we're somehow cheating the system. And I think we need to, we, we need to move past that, really, and be realistic about it. So to answer your question, I see it in different different ways. I, I saw work with an insurance company years ago they started really small every employee half an hour a week yeah. it's only ever going to allow them to do incremental stuff but it really moved their incremental needle so that was great for them um and i've done some work i've done quite a lot in the music industry actually with the, the major labels in the last five years and i've seen them starting to slowly get better at creating more more space um to do not not just innovation but what you said thinking time mm -hmm. that's you know, strategic imagination is going to be something that is a source of competitive advantage to us. So how much time should our leadership team, at least, spend time together that isn't board meeting and we're just talking about operations? It's putting ourselves in a space where we're going to ask ourselves questions we don't know the answers to. And we're going to bring in people who are going to scare us to death so that we're motivated to do something about AI because we still haven't got an AI strategy or whatever it might be. So I, I'm seeing certainly more time around thinking in some organizations, but often it's, it's related to the speed of industry as well. You know, if something's turning over really fast, there's yeah. 
more motivation to, to, to prioritize this stuff. And if they are paying attention to the unicorns that are coming up behind them, um, it gets yeah. a bit scarier, um, especially as an organization doesn't realize, you know, I look at Kodak or Blockbuster or all these, these mm. brands that you can say they, they had no idea it was coming so fast. Yeah. And, and as that rate of change has increased, I think people are recognizing the, I hate to say it, the threat is there. Yeah. But it is still difficult to shift. And, and what you talk about, and, and what I hear you saying is a lot of this is a shift in culture. Mm. It's not necessarily just strategy, practice, and tactics. It's, it's actually a shift in, in people. Yeah. How much, how much conversation, is, or how much are you when you're going into an organization evaluating, looking around the room going, well, I got some culture work to do. Well, always. I, I think when I was writing the book, the hardest part for me, the hardest thing that happened to me in writing the book was realizing that I was trying to squash two books into one and I had mm. to pull out tons of it and it was the culture stuff. There just wasn't enough space for it. Sure. And yet it's the heartbeat that makes the whole thing happen. And yet it feels like the fluffy stuff that's too intangible to really work with in, in most organizations. So it kind of gets left for HR to sort out. I'm starting to use the word culture less for those reasons. And I'm, I'm more starting to talk about space that you need to create and context that you need to create. Because I just feel like it, it, it just avoids that issue of culture because it's so loaded for, for lots of different reasons. Culture is jargon for, for as you go back to that. Yeah, yeah it really is. So I'm, I'm really in favor these days of when we're working with teams, help them say, again, what outcome do you need? What outcome do you need by when? What kind mm -hmm. of work profile is that going to necessitate? Therefore, to do your best work, how are you going to need to work together so that you can do that? Now, those ways of working are culture. How are sure. you going to hold yourself to account? How will we measure ourselves so that we know that these things continue to show up so we don't let ourselves off the hook when a fire lands on our desk? It's being deliberate about behavior, which is culture effectively. Um, and in those conversations, and often it's in a workshop context, and then you give them the tools to kind of keep, keep it moving. You're trying to find out, okay, what are the myths and legends in this team? You know, what are the, what are the, the sacred cows that need to be thrown on the barbecue? And you're yeah. stuck trying to just point to them and say, well, it's interesting. What makes you say that? What, what's yeah. happened in this team that causes you all to flinch when I say that word? Yeah. And, and just, it's, it's, you know, I'm reading the book, listening to the audio book at the moment, um, No Rules Rules, the Netflix oh, book. Come on. It's so good, right? Oh my goodness. I, I love it. That this, just the pragmatic way they have of being transparent about everything. I, I'm sure it's not as perfect as the book tells, but they sound as if they've made huge progress in helping people have straight conversations so that we can get to the point and create an environment where people can do their best work and that's the thing for me i'm often now working back saying you need to create in this team the sense that we're the best team that mm. anybody who's doing this kind of work this is the best place you can do your your career best work what would it take to create that environment what will we need to do differently so that in a year's time we can hand on heart say no one does this better than us that doesn't necessarily mean that your product is the best but the way we work I, I know I want that to be a source of competitive advantage. People are queuing up to work in my team, not Netflix or Google. Okay, great ambition. What would need to be true? Count the costs and you can make, you can make, anyone can do it. It's a choice. We, when Dan and I first started, and this is many years ago, we used the language, what if we built the company we wanted to work for? 
Yeah. And um, that shifted. I mean, it, it came up over and over and over again. It was like, well, we want to work for a company that does that. Mm. Like, you know, and it was funny how many decisions we were making that we, you know, and, and we talk with clients about this, how many decisions people make and we go, would you want to work for that company? Would you want to work for that team? Would you want to be on that team? And so often it's like, oh yeah, I get it. And it feels like there's this, I, but I have to, it's mm. like, why tell me why? Because it's always been done that way. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's such a brilliant language to talk about how, how to give people the space. Mm. Um, and I think, I think you nailed that. I think that's something we see a lot. It's something that takes and then it takes intentionality. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, basically what we're talking about is like, Hey, your intentionality is at like a five, even though you think it's a 60 and what you really need to be is an 80. Yeah. Right. Um, and that is, that's hard work. Yeah. Well, in the, you talked about spectrums earlier. There's another spectrum in the book where I talk about the difference between performance space and rehearsal space mm. on a slider. And I got this from, um, a voice coach from the X factor was talking to me about how they do innovation performance spaces, lights are on, cameras are rolling, you can't screw up. That's, you know, the operations of today. That's, and that's how it should be. But you can't expect great ideas, disruptive ideas to show up and thrive there for very long. You need a dedicated rehearsal space. So again, at the beginning of a project, I'm often encouraging people to say, okay, how ambitious is this based on what we do today? How much change is involved? How much learning? How much potential failure? Okay, move the slider. Where does it need to be, guys? Let's vote. You know, and the same mm -hmm. we do dot voting, let's do slider voting. What do we need? Okay, great. So it's about a seven in rehearsal space. Now describe that. What behaviors are we going to need in order for, for great performance to show up there? So again, it's just a device around the concept of space that you, then you've got something to hang it on. It's like, hang on a minute, we're drifting back into performance space mode here. We, we're killing, we, we, we all agree we're killing ourselves if we do this, aren't we? Yeah, okay, yeah, so course. regular check-ins. Um, it makes me think of when Facebook used to have the mantra of move fast and break things. Right. Mm. And this was the early Facebook. This is how they innovated so fast was they were okay with things breaking. Yeah. And there was, there was a, um, similar to Netflix. It was like, we'll sunshine the failure. I think that's the language they use. We'll yeah. sunshine the failure, learn from it. And then, and then get better. We'll mm -hmm. be even better on the other side. Now they've since changed that as they become a larger organization with, yeah billions of users to have to say, what is it? Move fast and build quality code or something like that. Something like that yeah. yeah. But and I understand that shift, but there are still sectors of the organization that kind of work really as many, many startups mm. still, still have that mentality of moves fast and break things until it gets integrated back into the, the mothership. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's okay. Cause it, yeah. you need to sustain at a certain point. That's right. Yeah. Um, what, you know, we're seeing organizations after coming out, out of a year of survival mm -hmm. of now starting to say, I know, I know we're going to be, we're, we, it appears we're going to be okay. No. Econ the world economy hasn't crashed completely yet. We're not exactly sure what the future looks like um, around the corner, but we want to, we need to start thinking about this again. What are you getting excited about? What's something that you're seeing uh, maybe a shift in conversation or maybe 2020 force us to shift that, that perspective that is maybe so we talk about sunshining is actually sunshining um, opportunity ahead of us. What, what do you think that might be looking forward? Um, I, well, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is 
and I hope it's going to last, is the, the shock waves that force people to say, actually, we really do need to innovate because mm. we are really going to be dead. Mm -hmm. And then they actually did it. And, you know, it's all being called and that thing that was going around, you know, what caused digital transformation inside your organization, the CEO or COVID, and we all know the answer is COVID. Right. Um, well, I hope that it's done something in a good way to scar our memory, to say yeah. that actually was possible. We always say, well, we can't do this because we made it happen and it might have hurt a little bit, but look what we achieved. Now, let's bottle some of that and use that to fuel our innovation ambition. And I, I am starting to see some of that. I'm not going to say I'm seeing it everywhere, mm -hmm. but I think it was definitely a wake-up call that was more than just a little blip. It really caught everybody's attention. And I think in the back of lots of people's minds, we're thinking, this could happen again. You know, mm -hmm. when's the next virus going to come and we're going to have to go, or other thing that could come, you know, uh, solar flare that knocks out Oh, my Cell dad's phones. been talking about it since I was a kid. So yeah, I get it. Well, we are due it. Apparently, <laughs> you know, we, we are due one and we don't seem to take it seriously, but it's, I think it's suffice to say something big enough at a global level happened for long enough to make yeah. us think this might not just be a freak. We probably do need to get better at thinking about contingency is one thing, mm -hmm. but also we need to be better at responding faster. So yeah. the work that you do in teams to, you know, rapidly in a cross-functional way, create agile led um, work that delivers results and keeps you relevant, that now has to break out of the IT box finally. And it, it is yeah. happening around, around different organizations, but that um, continual refresh, renewal of um, flushing out the things that were a good idea yesterday, but now just gonna hold us back. We haven't got time to hold on to that debt any longer. There needs to be a continual desire for that. And at the moment, as you said, we're coming out of it. There's, there's this sort of mix of glad that's yeah, over. We're tired. We got yeah. through by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. Um, but we've learned some lessons. Let's just keep that thing moving. I, I, I'm excited about that. I guess in my heart of hearts, I'm concerned that when the good times come back, um, that that starts to become distant memory. Now, well, maybe we didn't we don't, don't need to do so much of that. And uh, I've been around that loop with organisations. You go back two years later when they've decided to calm things down and they're back where they were again. So I'm hopeful and excited, at least that I've in some organisations that at least the ones I'm working with, there's a kind of acknowledgement that we do have to be intentional to you use your word ongoing about innovation and make it a strategic capability, not just you know, an idea jam every 12 months because our competitors just did one. Such a good word. Such a good word. I mean, it com comes back to the idea that innovation, digital transformation, technology, creative thinking, these are not initiatives. Mm. They are a way of being. They, they, it's, it's a shift in organizations to saying this, or Simon Sinek's The Infinite Game. This yeah. is the way we're going to think for the foreseeable future. It, it has to be a way of doing that. Now, back to what you said earlier, that also has to be done in a sustainable way. Because yeah. otherwise, I mean, what we were forced to do through the pandemic was work really hard to innovate. Mm. And it forced us to do it. But then you got a lot of people who are very tired. Yeah. And I've been talking to a lot of leaders recently. And I, I feel like that that's actually, it's the leaders that are even, even maybe not, I don't want to, I want to be re respectful of the, the hard work mm. that teams are doing. But the leaders are really tired because they feel like they've been having to hold this, both the yeah. emotional and confidence and these postures of 
everything's fine. Everything's fine. We're going to, mm. we're going to survive this. You know, we're doing this. They haven't taken any time off. They're not resting. Yeah. And, and I think we're going to see just an exhale of, okay, we're alive. Yeah. And the question is, is will people, like you said, will people pick it back up and say, keep going, keep going. Okay, cool. Let's mm. do that again. We've got the muscles there. I'm a little fatigued because we just did a really long workout, yeah. but, um, but I feel a little stronger and I feel like we could, we could do that again. Um, but my worry is that they just did a marathon and they just came off of training, you know, getting ready for the marathon, then doing the marathon. And now it's like, I ain't doing a marathon for another, you know, 10 years. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, yeah. how can we, how can we get that mentality of, no, it's fine. Just go for another run. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Well, um, Elvin, I really appreciate your time and your, your thoughtfulness. And, um, I, I think about this a lot that someone that wants to step into this space, sometimes we accidentally fall into it. Sometimes we're kind of passionately run into it. And other times it's just like, you just see a need and you, and you step into it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I appreciate you stepping into the need. I know you've been doing this for a long time, mm-hmm. but I think it's sometimes good to be reminded that, that the work that you're doing and I think that people are trying to help organizations think this way literally can change the world. Mm. And I sometimes forget that because, you know, 15 years of running an organization is like, yeah, but we're just writing more code and designing more screens and having more workshops. Mm. But, in, and then I look back and I go, yeah, but we built a company that went unicorn status, or we, we helped this organization pivot to a completely different business model or, you know, and then you go, how many jobs did that create? Yeah. How much, how much change that? And we don't always see the ripple effects, but I know some of the work that you're doing is creating lasting ripple effects. So thank mm-hmm. you for doing that. Oh, Bob, that's very nice of you to say that. Thank you. I mean, it's the reason I wrote the book. I thought I need to get the, the little that I know. I know it works. I need to give it away. And a few people mm-hmm. have said, why have you given so much away in the book? And I think because I want this to work. It's not just, and you know, people say, oh, business books, a good business card. You know, that's all it is really. I'm thinking, well, yeah, maybe. I made mine as a toolkit. (laughs) I actually want people to do it and use it. And I don't care if they just rip it off and use it as their own stuff. Because I'm already working on the next stuff anyway, but I want it to work. You know, so good. So good. So good. Well, I guess to that end, where can people find the book? Where can people learn more about you? Um, Elvinturner.com is probably the place to go first. BeLessZombie.com has has its own website. Um, I mean, if you just Google me or Google google the book it does tend to come up quite a bit so yeah and just heard it's been nominated for business book of the year over in the uk so um it hasn't yet been hasn't won but it's in the final at least so that was really congratulations exciting. that's fantastic yeah, thank I love you it. Yeah. I, love it. I mean even to get there i'm thinking i didn't even ever plan to write a book and uh it's a bit crazy it's good stuff what a blessing and thank you so much again for for joining me today and if you haven't go check out elvin's work uh i'm impressed and hopefully maybe our paths can cross again in the future. Thanks for being on today. I'd love to. Thank you, George. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with the support of Gabby Caton, Julie Branson, and Alexa Alfonso. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.